0: Our second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear the word of the Lord.
1: In the passage that Marian just read in Matthew chapter 11, we read this in verse 2 and 3. Now, when John, who's John the Baptist, by the way, John the Baptist, when John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of Jesus the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to Jesus, are you the one who is to come, the one we were expecting, or shall we look for another? Now, the the context here, the setup of this, is that John the Baptist is now in prison. We're not sure how long he's been in prison, But he had offended the political leaders and religious leaders of his day. So he's known to be the guy who baptized people in the Jordan, including Jesus. But he was also somebody who said things that got him in trouble. And what he said was he was talking about the evil deeds of King Herod, the Jewish uh, religious leader and king at that point, or not religious leader. He was not very religious. And Herod had him thrown in prison in one of his dungeons in a... um, in one of his fortresses. And and one of the things that we have to step into to really understand what's going on with John the Baptist at this point is that an ancient prison was an absolutely horrible place, the sort of thing we cannot imagine. So prison is always a terrible, terrible place. But in the ancient world in particular, in this first century world, it would have been the same. You were most likely underground. You probably had no light. You were chained to a wall 24 seven. You had very little um, to provide for you. In fact, some prisons, they wouldn't give you food. Only family or friends could bring you food, which if you were somebody who was in trouble with the, the authorities, if you showed up to bring food, it meant that you were in cahoots with that person. So you were absolutely alone. There was no rule of law. There was no justice. There was nobody to appeal to. You didn't have a lawyer. You were never getting out. And John knew he was probably going to either die down there of starvation or just the absolute darkness and despair or be executed. And so he sends some of his friends, his disciples, to Jesus. Jesus has been out doing things. He's preached. He's healed people. Are you the one or should we expect another? Now, John had known earlier, just a couple chapters earlier in the Gospel of Matthew that we're looking at during the season of Lent, that Jesus is the one. He had said so himself, but now he's in prison, and he begins to doubt. And part of that is because of John's expectations. You see, um, Jesus was somebody who John knew from growing up, but he also had been given divine insight about Jesus, that Jesus was the Messiah that they were expecting. In Matthew chapter 3, when he baptizes Jesus, the Holy Spirit falls on Jesus in the form of a dove, and then he hears a voice from heaven, the Father, "'This is my Son in whom I am well pleased.'" John is observant of all of this, and John himself says in another one of the Gospels, pointing to his disciple or with his disciples nearby, he points to Jesus, says, "This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world." John believed, just a couple chapters earlier, that Jesus is the expected Messiah. Now, John the Baptist was not just a baptizer; he was a prophet, and a prophet who proclaimed judgment. So not a prophet who tells the future necessarily, but one who says, because of your evil deeds, God's law is being brought and God is going to bring judgment. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Impending judgment and doom is coming on all of you. And in Matthew chapter 3, he foretells the coming of the Messiah, specifically in language that is judgment-based. In chapter 3, verse 11, we read John saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear away his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." I baptize with water. He who is coming, the Messiah, is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit, the power and presence of God, and with fire. And fire meant judgment. He is going to be mightier than I, a mighty ruler, who is going to bring fiery judgment on the powerful and the wicked. Any of the religious and political leaders that John had been talking about, the Messiah was going to come and bring judgment on them. So there's John in prison. Jesus is out proclaiming and doing things. And John is basically saying to Jesus through his disciples, if you are Messiah, why am I in prison and Herod is on the throne? Here's the man who had been given spiritual insight from God, the father almighty about who Jesus was. He had faith in Jesus as the Christ, but now he doubts. And if any of us are honest about the situation that John is in, we get it. Suffering and doubt go hand in hand. Not everyone who suffers doubts, but it is very, very common. If you go through any kind of challenge in life, the doubts can arise about whether you can trust in or believe in this God. You know, even something as uh, simple as pain, okay? Pain is all-encompassing. It's a very simple physical thing, sometimes a, a headache a sciatica, a toothache. And it's all you can think about. And when you're in pain, you know what you want? You want relief from the pain. You want it to go away. So when your life is filled with pain, you just want it to go away. And if there's a God who's powerful enough, you wonder why is it not going away? And look, if you are in here and are dealing in a season of darkness or pain, if you have suffered in your life chronic sickness, a diagnosis that is just crushing, if you've lost tragically somebody near you, somebody close to you, if you're in here today and you're just struggling with your identity, if you look at your life and look back and think, I'm just disappointed with where my life has gone, discouragement, no joy, the things that come into our head if there is a God is why. How can I endure this? I don't know if I can. I'm pretty sure that's what John was dealing with here. And the question that we often add to that or some version of it is, is God even good? Can I trust him? Can I trust him with my marriage, with my kid? We want to see God now. We want to experience him now. And when we don't, in the midst of suffering or loss, doubts come in. Are are you the one, Jesus? And if you are, why am I dealing with this? Where are you right now? And the question is, is is it okay to doubt, to question God? Are you allowed to do that in Christianity? The good thing is that we have a Bible filled with all sorts of heroes of the faith who struggled in doubts. The Old Testament is filled with them. These imperfect people who did amazing things for God, trusted in God, and yet at other times struggled in doubt. Elijah was a great prophet of God who saw the power of God come down. But later on, shortly after, God had shown up in an amazing way through him. He's being chased, pursued for his life by the, the armies of Jezebel, And at some point in 1 Kings 19, he gets to the end and he cries out to God. Basically, God, take my life. I don't want to live anymore. Jeremiah, the prophet, was called to prophesy in his home city of Jerusalem. And to say, destruction is coming on you, Jerusalem. Year after year, that's all he proclaimed. Destruction is coming. Repent. Judgment of God is coming. And everyone hated him. Literally, everyone hated him. He was thrown in prison multiple times. Everyone despised him. And yet he felt compelled to proclaim the the truth of God through his prophecies. And in Jeremiah 20, he curses the day of his death in a prayer to God. David, of course, does some of the same sorts of things. He has cries of despair that are recorded in the Psalms. In Psalm 13, he cries out, how long, O Lord? Why is this going to keep happening to me? The end of Psalm 39, another one of his psalms, he is in, in another type of anguish, and he asks God to turn his face from him so that he might laugh once more in his life before he dies. Like, God, turn your face from me so that I can smile and laugh once more before I die. John is the last and greatest prophet according to Jesus, just the one that precedes Jesus. And this is what Jesus says about John. In verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Among all humans, he is one of the greatest. For all the prophets, verse 13, and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept that he is Elijah, which was a prophecy that the one before the Messiah would be a a second Elijah, he was the Elijah who is to come. John is identified by Jesus as one of the greatest men of all time, a man of God. And yet he struggled in his suffering. One thing I want us to see from this is the fact that it's recorded in here that John is sort of struggling, it testifies to the historical validity of the Bible. The Bible records people doubting, great people doubting. No ancient text ever did this. The only reason why you would record it is if it actually happened. Otherwise you would have admitted it because it's embarrassing that this great prophet, the one who declared Jesus is the Christ a few months later is now saying, I'm not sure he really is the Christ. My life is terrible. I'm not sure he's the Christ right now. I need some reassurance. And secondly, it's great encouragement. It's great encouragement. If you've ever dealt with suffering, struggle, darkness, despair, and doubted yourself. It is not unchristian to doubt. Some of you have experienced churches or Christians who will not allow it. (laughs) It's not okay to question things, to wonder, to try to figure it out. It's not okay to be down and discouraged, even despairing. I want us to be a church where it's safe to do that. Now, look, I'm going to every week and as often as I can point to the truths of scripture and you may not believe in it. This is what we're going to point to. This is what we're going to uphold. Jesus is the Christ, but it should be okay for you to be in this space and not be sure about it, to be in a small group discussing and not necessarily ready to buy into everything. But if you are in that place or when you go through a season of suffering or doubt Go to Jesus. Who was he? What did he do? Ask him, are you the one? Pursue that question. Don't just avoid God or harden yourself. It's one of the beauties of the Psalms. A number of years back, I was dealing with discouragement uh, about a particular thing. And a friend said, look at the Psalms. And I said, I don't like poetry. And he he gave me a couple, and I I still don't accept the Psalms. Um, And so he he gave me a couple Psalms to look at and I found that the words of the Psalmists when they were in their darkness and despair was what I needed to hear. I needed to hear that there were others who went through the same sort of thing. And so just reading and rereading and praying through these prayers and cries of David and others to know that I can go to God even in my anger or discouragement until I'm ready to trust him again. John does that. He's in prison, but he goes to Jesus and he asks, Are you the one? And Jesus responds through the, his disciples. Verse 4 and 5 Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Look at the evidence. Look at what I've been doing. Go tell him what you see. What Jesus is doing here is not just talking about the things that he's been doing. He's referencing the Old Testament and the Old Testament hopes of what would happen when God came to redeem his people. There were hundreds of years of longings in the Old Testament when Israel was in exile and they'd been pushed out of their land. And the longing was for God to come back and bring justice and shalom. That one day God would arrive through his Messiah and bring his kingdom, that he would restore his people Israel, bringing them back from exile, and he would bring judgment on the nations who had turned away from God. And that God's presence would usher in a season, a time of shalom, which we talked about two weeks ago, wholeness, healing, completion, freedom, hope. One day God is going to come to do that. And Jesus, right here, is not just citing what he's been doing, he's referencing Isaiah, Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. That the Spirit of the Lord is on me to proclaim good news to the poor. I've come to set liberty, uh, set the prisoners free. And I am the Lord God who has come. You've seen this in my miracles, you've heard this in my teaching. The blind receive sight, demons are cast out, the dead are raised. I am doing all the things you've been longing for. But maybe not in the way or timing that you expected, John. You know what Jesus is not doing? He's not walking around Galilee, telling people how to get saved and what prayer to pray to get saved. What he's doing is proclaiming the good news in himself. That God has come in me. And he's ushering in the kingdom of God. Everywhere he goes, he is ushering in the kingdom of God by undoing the effects of the fall. Think about it. When he heals somebody, he's not just healing them physically, though he is. He's healing them physically. He restores them socially because they were always cast out if you had some sickness or illness. And the entire time he's unraveling the effects of the fall. The things like cancer or blindness or death, they were never meant to be. And He's saying, I'm undoing these temporarily in anticipation of the eternal kingdom. Everywhere Jesus went, he tells John, he is undermining evil. The power of evil in surprising and very, very personal ways. One person at a time. And that's what you see in Jesus is that it is the poor and the sick and the sinner and the outcast who Jesus goes to. And they're the ones who experienced Jesus' messiahship the most. Wherever Jesus went, it seemed to be the sick, the poor, the outcast, and the most sinful who were the ones who actually got it or got to experience the presence of Jesus. And in some ways, this reveals Jesus' priority in his ministry for the poor. The poor were the most impacted by the effects of the fall and evil in the world. And in fact, they still are today. To this day, the poorest of the poor in any country and around the world are the ones most impacted by evil and the effects of the fall. It is the poor who disproportionately live outside of the rule of law with no sense of justice, no one to appeal to. It is the poor who are afflicted by the violent who oppress them and take advantage of them. It is the poor who live in floodplains and lack schools and lack medical care. A number of years back when I was able to visit Nepal, we went to the slums of Kathmandu. The slums were basically places where no one should live They lived in uh, people lived piled up into metal corrugated shacks on the edge of a river where raw sewage dumped in constantly, and at least a couple times a year during the rainy season, it would flood their their homes would flood. They had uh, no access to schools, and any time that the richer people in the nearby uh, neighborhoods wanted to get rid of them, they could go in and act with violence, burn things down. And the authorities would say, well, we don't know what happened. Jesus has particular love and concern for the sick and the possessed, the outcast, the sinner, all the poor and powerless. And in a sense, the poor and the powerless also typify the heart that we are all meant to have, whether you feel actually poor, whether you are, or whether you actually feel powerless or not. Jesus talks about blessed are the poor in spirit, right? It's spiritual poverty. Now, spiritual poverty is actually hard for us in the modern West, especially in a place like Northern Virginia. Because spiritual poverty is the opposite of how we tend to think of ourselves. We tend to think of ourselves as comparatively good people. There's a lot of people that are worse than me as a person, you know, with your money, with your kids, with your whatever. So I'm comparatively good. And sure, we might say by nature, I need wisdom. I need prayers. I need help. That's why I go to church. I need a little help. But when Jesus talks in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5-7 through or Matthew 5 about blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, the persecuted, the suffering, he's also getting at this idea of spiritual poverty that God's blessing and presence is uh, there for those who admit they have nothing to bring, spiritually or morally. And now do we believe that? We have nothing to bring spiritually or morally to the table before God. Because if we did, we probably wouldn't care so much about getting credit or feeling embarrassed or fearing failure. We wouldn't be so determined to, be, to get our way, to win. We wouldn't always need to be right. We wouldn't always be trying to build our resume, prove ourselves, compare ourselves, We would not live in that constant need to be independent and self-sufficient if we actually believed we brought nothing to the table. Jesus and his message and his life are actually offensive to us. And Jesus said at the end of his little uh, statement to the disciples of John, verse six, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. A little over a decade ago, uh, a phrase was brought into my, the elementary school that my kids went to and I, other kids were using it too. But it was one that I didn't really use growing up. And it had to do with this, So, kind of the backdrop is this. Thankfully, there's been a lot of campaigns over the past 20 years or so in schools to get kids not to bully one another, to not be just mean verbally. Now kids do it anyhow. But you know, sort of that sense of like, you if somebody's shirt is ugly you don't tell them their shirt's ugly or if their breath stinks you don't tell them their breath stinks but kids get around rules that are made for them and so while they knew it was wrong to do that they had a way of saying it that would be not offensive by saying no offense but no offense but your breath stinks no offense but your shirt's ugly no offense dad but that sermon was way too long as soon as a kid said to me, no offense, I was immediately doing what? Taking offense. I knew they were going to say something that was offensive. Jesus knows that his entire life is offensive. The word that's used there that Jesus uses is a word that's one of the favorites in the gospel of Matthew. It, it comes from a Greek word that we have a translation similar that's scandalize. And it can also, besides meaning offend or scandalize, it can mean um, to trip up or cause somebody to stumble and fall. And specifically, when Matthew uses it, he talks about falling away from the faith. Blessed is the one who does not fall away because of me. Jesus is very clear that he is offensive. And in fact, he offends every culture on some level. You know, it's interesting. John is actually offended by Jesus' type of messiahship in the kingdom he's bringing. He wanted a king who was going to come and bring fiery rule and judge all of the evil people, including King Herod. And he's not doing that. We're okay that he's not doing that. But for us, we get offended by Jesus' exclusivity, that he's the only way. Where his claims to be the Lord and authority in our life. John was fine with that. He was fine with Jesus being the only way or being the Lord. In the West, we love some of Jesus' teaching and even his mode of doing ministry, that he cares for the poor and the sick and the weak, that he says, forgive others, turn the other cheek. In the West, we kind of love those things. These are great, but we are offended by his moral claims, what he says about sex, and his claim to be the only way. We find it all very hateful. But if instead of living in the West, modern West, if you lived even today in the Middle East, you would be totally fine with Jesus' moral teaching and his teaching on sexuality and his claim that he's the only way. Now, you would disagree with him. You would say maybe he's not the only way, but you wouldn't have any problem with an exclusive truth claim. On the other hand, you might be really offended by his claim that you're supposed to turn the other cheek when somebody offends you or your family. To forgive an enemy, that's humiliating and shameful. It's unthinkable and scandalous. Everyone is offended by Jesus at some point. But Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. At the root of this, Jesus is saying, what you do with me matters. Will we accept Jesus on his terms? Or will we fall away? Jesus' kingdom As John finds out, it's an upside-down sort of kingdom. Jesus defines what matters differently. In verse 11, he says, part of which we had read, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, Yet, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Yes, John is a great prophet, the prophet that we were looking for. But in the kingdom of God, even the least disciple is not below John. What Jesus is doing everywhere he goes, and this is even a challenge to John, is overthrowing his own culture's values, every culture's values. He overthrows his own culture's values, prioritizing power and position and status and wealth. These no longer matter, Jesus says. Humility, forgiveness, childlike faith do. Jesus challenges the wealthy, ignores the powerful, and condemns the most religious people. Instead, he eats with tax collectors who everyone hated. He touches the leper, which no one was supposed to do. He cares for a possessed Gentile and casts out the demon to set them free. Jesus says the first will be last and the last will be first. Blessed are you if you suffer for me, if you're humiliated for my sake. The way to live, you want to live? Do you want to live life to the full? Die. Die to self. Die to me for me. And to John, in a sense, he says, I came not to bring judgment on your enemies, John. I came to bear judgment for you, for everyone. The gospel is not for the successful, and the capable, and the self-sufficient. It is for the weak, the poor, the sick, the suffering, the struggling, those who are doubting, any of us who are willing to admit our need. Uh, this morning, if you are at all in that place of darkness, of suffering, of loss, of grief, if you're lonely, and just struggling in life, I want you to hear Jesus' words, Jesus' life, and the whole testimony of Scripture is that God's heart is for you. Jesus, think about what happened to him. He suffered. He was rejected by all of his close friends, betrayed by them. He was hated, and he was killed, murdered, crucified. Which means this. Your suffering is not because God doesn't love you. Jesus himself suffered. And in fact, he suffered so that you and I might experience God's love for us. But if you find it hard to believe, if even you want to have faith but right now you're not really sure you can, you're struggling with doubts, don't let your doubts disqualify you. And if you're skeptical, that's okay. But Don't sit in cynicism. Go to Jesus. Keep searching, keep asking, could you be the one? And if it's, if whatever you're going through in life right now is just too hard, if you're in too dark of a place, and if you're not right now, you might be someday soon, don't try to do it alone. You know, one of the great things that happens here is that I said, we all need to go to Jesus and John goes to Jesus to find out, are you the one? But John doesn't actually go to Jesus. He can't. He's literally chained up in a dungeon. But you know who can go to Jesus? His friends. Sometimes in your suffering and despair and doubts, you just can't do it. You just can't do it. Can't open the Bible. Can't pray. Certainly can't stand trying to show up at a church. But maybe a friend can. Maybe let their faith be enough for you for now. And if you are a friend to somebody who's going through a dark season, sit with them, listen to them, intercede for them, and give them time. We've talked about this here. Safety, a place of safety, a relationship of safety, plus the gospel The good news of Jesus Christ plus time is very powerful. You know, Jesus talks in this passage. He speaks back to John, then he speaks to the crowds about who John is. And then he goes on to to actually condemn cities. But in this whole sermon, uh, Matthew chapter 11, he finishes this sermon with something that I think was also a message to John, but also to people like him. We read it in Matthew 11.25, Jesus, this is again, same chapter. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children, who he is and what he had come to do. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. I am the Lord God who has come to reveal the father. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior, Jesus Christ opens wide his arms and says, come to me. Let's pray. Jesus, in this room, there are bound to be dozens and dozens of people who are or have struggled with doubt, struggled in darkness with their own life and uncertain about you and whether they can trust you. I pray for them right now. I pray for each of us, Lord, to know the fullness of your grace, to be drawn in by a God who loves us by one who began unraveling evil and wants to do so in our lives as well. And I pray for release and freedom and joy once again and the hope of the good news of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.
0: Lord, I find you in the seeking. Lord,